This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. This morning, we sat down in the studio with Honolulu Prosecuting Attorney Steve Alm, the former uh, U.S. Attorney for the District of Hawaii and Circuit Court Judge, is worried about the recent headlines about violent crimes across the state. He hopes it is not the new normal. Well, there certainly have been a number of violent crimes, including gun crimes, and that's really disturbing. And we're working closely with HPD to identify you know, who the perpetrators are, hold them accountable, and look, working with HPD to identify where did the guns come from. You know, Hawaii historically is in the bottom 10 nationally for violent crime and one of the very lowest for uh, web gun crimes. We are always in the top five for property crimes. Partly that's tourist destination and the like. Our big meth problem, I think, contributes to that. But there's no question uh, the cases have been really violent. Uh, but I'm a big you know, person looking at data and research to drive criminal justice policy. Uh, and uh, it, it'll be interesting to see. We're hoping that um, because 20 and 21 years appear to be re- lower numbers because of COVID. You know, if businesses are closed, you're not going to have as many shoplifting cases. You know, if, if people are at home, maybe fewer burglaries. If there are some, they may become home invasions. Uh, but the overall numbers between 19 and 20, you know, were down by 20 percent. I mean, 30 percent. You know, that's overall. Your neighborhood may have been higher. And if you personally were the victim of a crime, none of these stats matter. But what we will look be looking very carefully is to see uh, is crime going up or is it's go- it may well be going up, but is it going up to pre-pandemic levels or is it worse? And is this a new normal? We're hoping like heck that it's not. And, and we have yet to get the latest numbers for 2021. Correct. Let alone 2022. And so, you know, but th- that's important to look at. And I think when the um, uh, Honolulu Police Department major in Waikiki was asked about this recently and it was in the in the paper, he said, well, the numbers are higher than they were last year, but they're lower than or comparable to pre-pandemic times. So, you know, I think we're strategizing with HPD. I think they're going to have a bigger police presence at certain places in Waikiki. We're trying to charge people with felonies as much as possible. And then the next step is convincing the judges to send the violent ones to prison. I ran with this office to you know, restore trust in the prosecutor's office after all the corruption and the other problems. But part of that is keeping people safe. That's, that's my number one job. And so the violent and dangerous and the ones who absolutely won't stop stealing need to go to prison. You know, Halava or the mainland. You know, they should get classes there. They should get rehabilitated there. But they need to be removed from society for a while. And I think that's important. Well, I think the headlines this year uh, were particularly distressing because not only were there cases where a, a violent crime occurred, but the weapons were in hands of basically teens. Yeah, we did have a couple 19-year-olds involved. And, yeah, I- instead of, you know, a fist fight. It went to firearms, which is, you know, much more deadly and some horrific cases. Uh, You know, we have had horrific cases in the past. I remember that uh, when I first started at the prosecutor's office, there was a a guy in a bar and a woman had uh, touched his Godzilla doll and he basically stomped her to death, you know, and was charged with murder. And, you know, that that was a horrific crime at the time. He was convicted of manslaughter, unfortunately not murder. But, you know, it's uh, not to minimize anything about what's going on today, but we have always had some horrific crimes. It appears now there just seem to be a lot at the same time. Yeah, and if somebody's using a gun uh, to try and rob somebody up at Tantalus Lookout and the other person pulls a gun out, I mean, gosh, you just right. don't expect that, especially when, when we're talking about teens. Yeah, and that's partly why we're trying to work with HPD to identify where did these guns come from? you know, legally purchased. It, it seems unlikely that somebody who goes through the process of applying to HPD for a weapon, you know, and getting their name and registering it to them, it seems unlikely that they themselves would be using that in a crime. On the other hand, somebody in their household may have gotten a hold of it, uh, or it could have been stolen in a burglary. That's why we really encourage homeowners, you know, who, who have firearms at home to lock them in a safe, 
uh, you know, it helps in many ways. It helps to, uh, you know, keep them from getting stolen in a burglary. It also reduces suicide. Be, you know, the, the longer it takes, if it's right at hand, instant, you know, impulse stuff can happen. Or, or a little kid's playing with it and shooting another little kid, you know, which, which is horrendous for everybody. So we do ask that. But my feeling is it's unlikely a person who is, you know, a law-abiding citizen, registered owner who, you know, gets a firearm and follows through the procedures, they're unlikely to use it themselves out there on somebody else. Well, as we, you know, see the stories about these violent crimes, you know, I mean, some say it's mental health issues, some say it's, you know, guns, gambling, but let's focus, I guess, on Chinatown. You know, we've seen some bad things happen there, and there's a renewed effort. You know, the whole weed and seed program. Yeah. So, so talk about what we're doing there. There have been that horrific case uh, where a man's clothes were set on fire and he was badly burned. Uh, Chinatown has always been a violent, dangerous place. That's why it was picked for weed and seed. You know, you don't go to Manoa or you don't go to, you know, uh, Kahala to do that kind of program. It needs to be in a place where crime, there's a lot of crime going on. And so we are working very closely with HPD and Chinatown honestly looks a lot better than it used to. And I got a great letter from uh, Bishop Silva, Catholic Church saying, thanking us for our, all of our efforts. And it is a team effort, it's a collaboration, but saying the parishioners at Our Lady of Peace Cathedral can now go in peace and are not harassed either going to church or coming out of church. The job isn't done, but it's, it's a lot safer, it's a lot cleaner, and part of that is the homeless thing. There, there, there were fewer crimes this time than the last time we did We Didn't See 20 years ago, but the homeless problem is much worse. Right, and the mental health issues. And the mental health issues. And, and I, I congratulate HPD because they're the ones out there patrolling, they're the ones out there arresting people. I, I thank Mayor Blangiardi for all of their efforts and Anton Krecke. Moving River of Life is a huge help to the neighborhood. And there are a number of people with mental health issues. And if they can get fed right there, they're going to stay there and often throw their, the foodstuffs or the mm-hmm. you know, packaging around. But they have made a real commitment to Chinatown. You know, and the whole weed and seed uh, effort is, is doing really well. One of the things we were convinced of is, you know, and, and the homeless are not a monolithic group. You have husbands and wives who've lost their jobs. They've stayed with relatives. Now they're living in their car, maybe their kids. They will jump at a chance to go to housing and get a job. You know, we're talking about the guys, people sleeping on the sidewalk on Mauna Kea Street or on Pauahi. We are convinced almost all of them have mental health or drug and alcohol problems or both. So what are we doing there and is it working? What we're doing is we set up a program called SUDAFAST stands for Substance Use Disorder Assessment hyphen FAST, with the idea that if, a, uh, and this is getting everybody organized, it's, it's intake service center at the jail, and Max Otani is easy to work with, he's open to new stuff, he's the head of public safety. So the jail, it's the Department of Health, and it's all the treatment programs, public defenders, prosecutors. So more than 100 homeless people have been arrested in Chinatown for felonies almost all drug possession. And what we're doing now is getting them assessed and then the Department of Health will try to line up which is the most appropriate program for them in the community, whether it's Hinamauka, whether it's Poilani, whether it's Salvation Army ATS, whoever it is. And then an order will be cut, we'll stipulate to the pub, with the public defenders, and they will get picked up at OCCC by Department of Health and taken to the program. Now, we have already screened out if they have a really violent history or the like, we're going to try to send them to prison. But that's a rarity among the homeless in Chinatown and maybe in other places. So the whole idea is do this at the front end, because otherwise what happens if a homeless person gets arrested, say, for drug possession, which is a felony, he or she, if the judge releases them soon, they're going to go right back to the street, but maybe to a different place. But if if they stay in custody, it's going to wait until they end up with a plea, plead guilty, and then the public defender individually will try to help them get into a program. That is months and months down the road. And so this is at the front end. And then by the time sentencing comes up, they're already in treatment and they're helping themselves because we're trying to not just get them off the street, but help them stay off the street. You know, and there's a lot of voluntary efforts, the Honu program that HPD does, the core program that Anton Krecke and the city are doing. 
those are great if people voluntarily take advantage of those. The problem is a lot of the homeless will not take advantage of voluntary programs. Right. You know, and we're hearing calls that folks may want to see a weed and seed program possibly in Waikiki because we've had some cases uh, of note uh, recently, uh, possibly mental health. You know, if robbery is not the motive, why lash yep. out at, at, uh, uh, at Kapuna walking uh, the streets? Uh, so, so what can you tell us about Waikiki? Well, when I was the United States Attorney, that's when we started working with everybody doing weed and seed. And when I left, my successor did not really want to follow through with it, and neither did the city prosecutor at the time. So the weed part died out. The seed part kept going, both there and in the other two sites, Waipahu, including the Pupu Street area, and Eva Eva Beach. But to get the full thing, you need weed and seed. They work together. They help each other. They make it stronger. So the weed part died out. The seed part kept going. So uh, kind of simultaneously, we're going to be picking up the weed part again in Eva Eva Beach. You know, local people deserve to be safe. And whether it's Waipahu, whether it's Eva, whether it's Eva Beach, there are problems, crime problems there. We can work with HPD to help that. At the same time, there is a lot of interest in Waikiki. So we're starting the conversation with residents, businesses, workers in Waikiki because they know their area the best. And that's happening this month. That's happening this month. It's starting because, and I'll give you an example. When, when Weed and Seeds started in Kalihi Palama in Chinatown, we had Stu and Rice at Kaiolani Elementary School across from Mayor Wright. And I'd ask the residents and the b- people that came to the meeting, you know, what are your big crime problems? They said, well, you're the expert. I said, yeah, but I live in Kaimuki. I don't live here. You know this area the best. Tell us. So they said, well, there are those drug dealers on Pua Lane, and that we knew about. But they also said people speed up and down Pool Lane, getting between King Street and Vineyard. We're not going to let our kids play outside. They'll chase a ball into the street and get run over. And so we talked to the city council, and the city council, to their benefit, probably John Yoshimura led the effort, put up speed humps in like two weeks. And that slowed the traffic down. They're there to this day. Talk about an innovative, quick intervention cheap that right. we never we from the outside never would have thought of so but, all right so then uh, at, at the end of this month there will be a town hall meeting yes. to talk about this yes with a- the and council member from that area right and uh representatives police department other folks anton you know w- with with some ideas for helping waikiki and and so for the weed and seed it's getting feedback starting the process getting feedback from the residents and the goal of the Weed and Seed program is to control violent crime and drug-related crime. We were talking to Steve Baum, Honolulu City Prosecutor, former judge and U.S. Attorney, about the recent rise in violent crimes in just the past few months here on Oahu. That virtual uh, town meeting uh, in Waikiki is tentatively set for May 26th. Starting at 6 p.m., the city tells us there will be more details and publicity uh, as we get closer to that date. The uncertainty around the path forward with the invasion of Ukraine by Russian forces has upended lives across the globe, stretching into another month. We talked to Hawaii resident Antonina Thompson, who has built a life here in the islands. She works as an interpreter, but she's had her hand in the movie industry. She shared that she helped actor Tom Hanks with his Russian accent in the movie Terminal. But this real-life drama playing out in her home country isn't something she can turn off and stop watching. Relatives and friends can't escape the reality of missiles and tanks. Her friend Marina Krivlova has been volunteering to provide food for the elderly and sick, and she's been helping to take care of abandoned animals in Ukraine. Many uh, family members still there, my cousins, my uh, mother's sister, my auntie. She's in Kiev, 80-year-old. You can understand uh, she cannot leave. It's very difficult for elderly to travel, especially you know, the ones with the medical condition. And uh, so she's uh, always, um, you know, hearing the sirens, had to leave, staying in basements, in the subway, hiding. You know, it's it's heartbreaking to see, um, you know, 
my family go through that. Yeah, we are into the second month of this, and yeah. it's just, I would just think torture because the, the frightening sounds and, and just the uncertainty of it all. Yes, yes, absolutely. And uh, families torn apart, you know. Her, for example, her daughter went to um, to village. She took their kids and grandchildren to uh, try to hide. You know, many millions of, I mean, Kiev is like three million people, and two million had to go. So imagine the traffic and accidents and I mean there's so much tragedy just within you know a few weeks of this um, madness and um, well when they went to hide in a smaller town um, that town got bombed so it's like no matter where they go the whole Ukraine is in in in, in flame you know it's under siege yeah under siege so no it's 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 devastating absolutely devastating and uh, the only two family members survived uh, well, they left um, when they start bombing Vinitsa Airport. I told, I, I found out on the news, and I said, "Get out," because <laughs> the only railway uh, opened. And I said, "Get out!" And uh, so she took her nine-year-old daughter, just suitcase. Imagine, nothing, and uh, a couple of you know uh, suitcases. And uh, she she left to border, and luckily, a friend of mine um, came from America, volunteer. Met uh, met them there and they helped them to cross the border. You know, so it was like uh, many volunteers, many friends, and strangers helped um, my family because you know traveling woman with a child is also dangerous. I mean, it's chaotic. But they're safe. They safe. They moved to Germany now, so they safe. And you still have friends there in Ukraine. Yes. And we are in contact with someone right now who is there. Make the introductions. Right. Um, this is Marina Krylova. She She's ethnic Russian, actually. And uh, that's what she wants to talk about, that Putin says that he comes to save Russians, but he actually bombing Russians <laughs> who lives on the border, um, the um, city of Kharkiv. So I will introduce to you Marina. Marina, пожалуйста, представьтесь. Добрый вечер. У нас сейчас уже вечер. Меня зовут Марина Крылова Марина. Я Марина Крылова. Ковчанка, родилась в Харькове. Подожди. I was born in Kharkiv and I'm I'm living there at the moment. And so, gosh, what are you hearing and seeing, Marina? Расскажи, пожалуйста, что ты слышишь, что ты видишь, что происходит в Харькове. Ну, хочу сказать, что 24 февраля в 5 часов утра, ну, это известный факт, на нашу страну, на Украину напала Россия. So what she said that uh, 5 a.m. on February 23rd, uh, she was awakened by the noise of the explosion. And that was her early morning. And you can understand that the, the fear, the confusion, what's going on. Продолжай. И uh, вот сегодняшнего дня uh, Россия, российская армия пытается захватить, оккупировать наш город, если мы имеем в виду именно город Харьков. Uh, so from that day on, uh, Russian army continues bombing and trying to take over the city for over the siege. They siege the city over a month now, and uh, um, this is keep going. It's going. It's never stopped. Every single night, uh, uh, they hear bombings. Uh, you know, the, there's no even a day or a night. It's um, something is not exploding, or rockets is not exploding, or hitting the civilian um, buildings. Or um, every day, it's happening. And uh, also, um, they they can f- they don't just hear, but they feel it. You know, so it's on a daily basis, every day. The damage to her city. How bad is it? Uh, расскажи, пожалуйста, как, насколько разрушен город Харьков? Я живу в одном из самых больших районов Харькова, это Салтовка. She lives like on the south of uh, part of city where the, the most uh, populated and they also the most damaged uh, part. And um, uh, she never left, you know, she stayed there for a reason. Расскажи, почему ты там осталась? Во-вторых, я знаю о том, что я нужна этому городу и людям. And the, the reason she stayed there, um, there's many reasons. The mainly reason that she's a patriot and she loves her city. And uh, also her parents, they don't live that far. She has uh, also the, some neighbors and animals that she takes care of. And she also picked up the animals. So she's like has like an animal sanctuary now there. Because nobody think about these things, you know, but they also um, little lives, and so she's saving them. 
and uh, also she volunteers trying to help elderly those who couldn't leave what is the water and food situation like in um, her city uh, so she said that her particular building she was lucky it, it didn't it, it, it still have water and uh, uh, basic you know like electricity that's what she's able to call us um, but the neighbor like the neighboring buildings totally destroyed and have no heating no water and so it's really depends on the you know situation where where damage is and uh, she said she wants to give a lot of respect and and um, to those um, me, you know mechanics and those people that uh, fixing uh, things when it's broken you know and uh, plumbers and all those uh, people that uh, day day and night you know working trying to keep the city alive or those who you know st still there um, to keep them I mean we're talking about um, ma many people сколько живет в Харькове how many people in Harkov? Uh, 1.5 million people. The 1.5 million is uh, the, the citizens there, but they also, this is a city of the students. So you can imagine how many students from around the world lived there, um, worked and studied. And um, now many of them refugee as Ukrainians, you know, they had to leave, they had to. So the many universities are shut down, everything is, um, everybody left or still in there, trapped. Some of them students start trapped. So basically it's a tragedy for international, you know, tragedy, not just Ukrainian. Is this city in the Donbass region? No. It is a border. It is a border of the Donbass and Russia. So it is strategic, uh, probably is uh, connecting Donbass with Russia. So the Kharkov is like in the middle. Well, it just must be scary because we're, you know, seeing the devastation in Mariupol and you just worry about those port cities. Uh, many of uh, Russians who live in Kharkov um, and many Ukrainians are sleeping underground in, the, you know, basements, in subway stations, and they all have a faith that um, this war will be over soon and uh, they will not give up and give in their city, that beloved city, beloved by Russians and Ukrainians and international <laughs> community alike because it was a beautiful city. And um, they they have faith and hope this is going to be over soon. Marina, thank you very much. We certainly you know hope you keep safe, and we are grateful that you're willing to speak with us today. Спасибо вам огромное, что вы поддерживаете мою страну. Я уверена, что мы обязательно победим, потому что правда это есть правда и Thank you so much for supporting Ukraine, for um, showing the truth, because truth is truth, and uh, she's very grateful for this opportunity to share the truth with the world. That was part of a conversation we had with Russian Marina Kriblova, who is living in a port city on the border of Ukraine and Russia. Thanks to her friend and interpreter Antonina Thompson, we'll pick up uh, more of that conversation after a short break. back to hear the second half of a conversation that we had with Honolulu resident Antonina Thompson, who was trying to deal with the stress of having friends and family in Ukraine who are living in a war zone. So yeah, this is something that you're dealing with every single day, listening to your friends and your family, yeah. just help to help them get through this time. Yeah, I mean, this is uh, this been a most uh, stressful for me personally, a month uh, I even consulted doctor <laughs> because my high blood pressure, you know, it's like you, you live, uh, it's almost like a movie, you know, me working in the industry, uh, you know, we used to play, I was a part of the war stories, you know, we used to pretend the war, we used to pretend. Now it's like reality, it's a reality show, you know, in a way for me. Every day I um, call and find out how's, how we doing, you know, what's going on. And uh, many of my uh, family, at the, f the first few days, they were terrified and they didn't know what to do. And, you know, everybody panicked. It was a panic. 
Now I see the unity in people. I see um, how they organized, you know, the people themselves, like no government telling what to do. They organize, you know, volunteering. My cousin, for example, she makes clothes. So she used to make beautiful dresses. Now she turned making vests, you know, because there's lack of vest for uh, soldiers and, um, you know, the other cousin uh, in the kitchen, you know, drying food, for example, for because, again, food is very important now uh, because of bombing of the airports and uh, railway stations. So people um, not going to have a supply. So preserving food, uh, this is a big deal. And um, so many volunteers preserving food by drying them up and uh, send it to uh, whoever needs it. Also, my other cousin, he uh, he's a programmer, right? So he works with drones and, you know, electronics. So everybody got involved in some capacity or not to help. Like, what can I, how can I be useful? And yeah, what are my skills and how can we use this to protect our people? And it's all volunteer, you know, but again, paid. You know, everybody's helping because they love each other and they, they want to win. They really want to bring peace and nobody expect it is such a you know unity but uh, it's amazing just amazing the faith and the people is so strong and us like me uh, what can I do here you know I'm just a mother and <laughs> I, I thought to myself what can I do so we started protests against the war and uh, we said look uh, Ukraine is a peaceful country uh, we're independent democratic country we don't want war and you're you're out there with your friends and the supporters uh, Friday afternoons and Sunday at the park. Unbelievable. Um, again, when we started, it was just few of us with the, you know, f- we didn't even have flags, you know. I was like, oh my God, where can I get a flag? <laughs> but uh, we made handmade flags, you know, uh, masks and t shirts, you know, colors and bl- blue and yellow patriotic colors. And uh, we, we go out there, you know, we protest. Uh, and what's amazing that not just Ukrainians, we have Russians with us. In unity, you know, we had a guy who burned his passport. Unbelievable! Like he said, I don't want to be part of the country who's aggressor, and uh, you know, we attracted attention, and even um, many news stations talked about us. Now, you know, like we trying to bring the message out there that we're here to bring peace. You know, we are a peaceful nation, and that's why we wear a lot of colors and flowers. You know, <laughs> it's um, like sunflower is a national flower of Ukraine. So we we um, we doing our work. Everybody's doing the work, and I'm glad that we united here as well in America and uh, thousands. I mean, not a million pe- people, uh, millions of Ukrainians around the world, um, in 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 that spirit, in that unity that we want to win, and show the world that uh, Ukraine is not um, going to be easily taken over, or d- democracy is just gonna, you know, anybody can just come and take uh, peace away or democracy away. No. And. You know, we've just come off uh, Easter time, and I'm sure very emotional for the folks, you know, here, thinking of their loved ones there in Ukraine, because that is also a very big religious holiday. Yeah, unfortunately, they got bombed on Easter, and that's very sad, you know. I mean, uh, that's the, the, human po- the human side of this war, um, very little talked about. Um, like simple things like holidays, right? Or this is taken away, that this simple joys of um, holidays or being with your loved one, you know, having simple dinner. It's just there's no, no more exist, you know. But even though um, they have shortage of food or whatever, they still created a little celebration, you know, and they still sang the songs and they, in, in the basements. I mean, it's just uh, lighting candles. And I've seen the photos of um, how people you know, survive, like, even though there's no electricity, they create, um, you know, outdoor barbecue just to bake a cake, for example, or something. So they just, uh, out of all the negativity, people start trying to find the, you know, positive side. Or, you and know, the normalcy. Normalcy, that yeah. Hold Especially on to for that. children. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, tough time for everyone. But thank you so much. I really appreciate you uh, uh, stepping up and sharing the stories of your community. Yes, thank you. And, you know, the weekend gathering at Magic Island here on Oahu by the Ukrainian community is still going strong. The picnic table set up caught the eye of April Connolly. She was drawn in, sharing that her friends, one Ukrainian and one Russian, are having a difficult time with how things have unfolded. Connolly moved here from New York City. She comes to the park regularly to roller skate. She likes to think she's helping in some small way to deal with the situation that many feel hopeless to control. She's donated to the Ukrainian cause and just wants to reach out in friendship during this time. 
I worked in a restaurant called Hotel Chantel in the Lower East Side, and one of my fellow servers was named Roman. He's from Ukraine and just a good buddy of mine. And I reached out to him before the war started just to make sure his family was okay. Um, I also have a Russian friend here, and she found it very difficult too on social media getting some, you know, not very nice things said about her where, you know, it's not any of the, you know, the people's fault with what's going on. It's just terrible for everybody. So you're just here just for moral support and just want people to know that you care. Yeah, I like what they're doing here. Um, I think we get a little bit too tied down on like listening to what the news is saying. And I don't like the idea of people being in war zones. And I, I like that they're painting and listening to Ukrainian music, wearing Ukrainian things and, you know, just uh, have children and dogs and are having a nice time on Magic Island. We're, we're all safe here. I love this park so much. I think it is a magic island um, and uh, I like the, you know, just happy vibes here, skaters, um, birthday parties with bouncy castles uh, and just beautiful weather and waves rolling through. And that was April Connolly, who we talked to on Sunday at Magic Island at Alamoana Beach Park. She's a regular park, park user who stopped by to paint rocks with the Ukrainian community, helping to create a thing of beauty to take their minds off the ugliness of war and hoping peace will be restored soon. Support for HPR comes from UH Manoa's Osher Lifelong Learning Institute for ages 50 and older with virtual and in-person courses designed to engage the mind and enrich lives. Classes begin May 31st. More by searching Osher Hawaii. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Locke Kelly, author of Shift into Freedom. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about the science and practice of open-hearted awareness. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Board of Water Supply, working to protect Oahu's water resources, offering tips to conserve water, such as taking shorter showers and fixing leaks. Updates on Red Hill at protectoahuwater.org. Honolulu Civil Beat editor Chad Blair joins us today to talk about the minimum wage. That is our reality check as we move closer to a hike in the hourly wage. It's a story by reporter Thomas Heaton. Hi, Chad. Good morning, Catherine. Happy to be covering for Thomas today. Yes. And gosh, that uh, minimum wage bill, that's up for a vote today. It is. I saw it on the Senate calendar order of the day a few minutes ago, and uh, the House will be getting to it. I don't know if that's today or on Thursday. That's the last day of the session. But all indications are that, yeah, the state's minimum wage will be going up from $10.10 an hour uh, to $18 uh, by 2028. There were some compromises that had to be worked out regarding that, and I won't go into that here, but I think what's so interesting about Thomas's article is I think when we think of minimum wage, we tend to think of retail, right? People that are working in restaurants, people that are parking cars, valet, whatever the case may be. We don't necessarily think about agriculture, uh, but I was surprised to learn from his article, it's up on our website today, that the average ag worker here on Oahu, or the average worker on Oahu, needs $18.63 to live just to have basic needs, right? It's even more on Kauai. It's, it's less on Maui and the Big Island, but still, you need to have that kind of money. So his story today is wondering, can the ag industry here uh, support that? And he spoke to people uh, in the industry that say this is going to be a big challenge. Yeah, and that's, I think, what drew me to this story uh, this morning when I read it, is you don't always hear about those farm laborers and what they make and how this is going to affect the bottom line of these um, ag workers. Right. The estimate is that there is a, 
about 5,000 people uh, that are working in the ag industry that work uh, for an average of $18 already. Uh, that wage doesn't go up until 2028, of course, but it's graduated, right? They're going to bring it in uh, over time. And so uh, one of the farmers has already done the math. They said, look, if you just look at the first raise, which is $1.90, if you if you work that out, that's about four thousand dollars per employee working a forty hour work week, and that's just the first step increase, and that's a big thing for people to take on. What the farm industry here struggles with, has always struggled with, is the fact that it's competing with the mainland for cheaper food. The mainland has a large, much larger labor pool, much larger farms. There's more advanced technology in some places, uh, and one person that uh, that. Thomas talked to Brian Miyamoto, right? He's the Hawaii mm-hmm. Farm Bureau Executive Director. He says, we can't compete with that. And, and we can't actually compete. We can't tell someone how much to, to sell this produce for. It's something that's set by retail, not by the farmers themselves. So the concern is that they're going to take a big hit. It's really the hospitality and retail markets that, that handle the prices for, for buying produce. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Thomas's article points out that, you know, the costs are rising for things like fertilizer, pesticide, you know, and that is a strain for um, the farm community. Right. Fertilizer and pesticide up 40 percent, or rather it is 40 percent higher here in Hawaii uh, compared to uh, farms on the mainland. The farms here are much smaller. A lot of them are just very small operations. Uh, they generate much less in sales uh, compared to their mainland counterparts. How are they going to be able to compete? Uh, with the mainland, and this, of course, is a, a struggle that we all all face. And and then there's this concern. We call this a livable wage, but what does that really entail? Are there some incentives maybe that need to be provided? And these are the things you hear all the time when you talk about how difficult it is to, to make it in Hawaii. Can you provide some housing somehow? Uh, can you provide health and, and dental insurance? What about a 401k? Well, a lot of these small farms really don't have the resources to be able to handle the, that, those kind of expenses. Yeah, and, uh, you know, lots of the uh, farmers and uh, nursery owners that I've talked to for stories, you know, say they're getting on in age. Uh, they're mm. really thinking long and hard about whether they can afford to stay in business because maybe their family doesn't want to, you know, uh, continue on with the family business because they, they know it's rough. And so, yeah, you well, have added costs and everything. It is, and it's physical labor, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's uh, why not uh, seek a job in the construction industry, uh, far larger wages. And of course, construction's doing pretty well here in the islands. Look at Kakako and Alamoata, right? At all those high rises. So, so why work on a, a farm or a family farm when you can be working in construction? And there's, uh, there's other things too. It's been really tough, not just with fertilizer and pesticides, but you know, we've had supply chain issues. Uh, we're competing with imported food all the time. So, uh, there, There is at least one bill that's being considered at the ledge. We'll see whether that passes this week as well. They work out a mentorship program to, to help uh, with these programs. In other words, to get people up to speed, uh, to have unskilled laborers become skilled. But again, it comes down to that bottom line, the dollar figure. Or how is the, the ag industry going to be able to absorb $18 an hour for many of its workers just, just six years from now? Yeah, food for thought for sure. (laughs) Well done. (laughs) Yes. Well, thanks so much, Chad. Thanks, Catherine. That was Civil Beat editor Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. You can read uh, Thomas Heaton's story online at civilbeat.org. Small businesses were one of the many casualties of the COVID pandemic. Those that were able to survive learned valuable lessons about adapting and evolving to reach new customer bases. One local business that managed to hang on is Kona Bay, Hawaii. It specializes in 1950s-inspired aloha shirts. When it opened in 2001, it primarily marketed to Japanese visitors coming to Hawaii. 
But in 2020, after the pandemic cut off international travel from many Asian countries, the company's owner, Kusuo Kesikiuchi, realized his business model needed to change. The Conversations' Russell Subiano sat down with Kiuchi in our studio to talk about how his business survived. I know that in recent decades, Japan has developed a special relationship with Hawaii and our culture. Mm-hmm. I know there are hula halaos in Japan. I know many local musicians who right. perform there regularly. Right. What is it about Aloha shirts that Japanese people love so much? The first Aloha shirts, mm-hmm. I think, made Japanese American people mm-hmm. made. So everybody, you know, just Im- impression or something. Tokyo is a big city, just many buildings there. Hawaii, the tropical mood, everything, just big, big different. So everybody come to here, just uh, changing wear, just uh, so happy. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think. Oh, yeah, yeah, I could see that. Coming to a place where the weather is a little bit more tropical. Right, right, right. Right, and right. Di- different setting, right? right? Still snow in Japan. Right, right. So, <laughs> yeah, everybody escaped. Everybody wants to ex- okay. escape to Hawaii, right. yeah. What about you? What do you love about the Aloha shirt? First time I met Hawaiian shirts, mm-hmm. I watched the movie just um, about 1983. Okay. The 77 movie, Big Wednesday. Okay. I watched the Big Wednesday. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. So just William got uh, wear just Aloha shirts and John Michael Vincent wear Aloha shirts. Right. Yeah. I checked uh, everything. Just everybody wear uh, 1950s original vintage. Right. So your your first impression of the Aloha yeah, shirt. That's right. You saw in the movie Big Wednesday. Yeah. Big Wednesday. The actors in the movie were wearing Aloha shirts, yeah. and, and that made a real big impression yes. on you. Yes, that one California culture, the Hawaii culture, this Aloha shirts culture, just so many culture in movie. Yeah. So yeah, just great movie. I know that you're a U.S. citizen now, right? Right. Uh, but you grew up in Japan. Yes. And you started your company Kona Bay Hawaii Aloha shirts. You started in 2001. Yes, that's right. And you were you actually started in Kona on the Big Island. Yes. Right? Yes. But you moved your business to Waikiki in 2012 so that you could be closer to the Japanese visitor market. Yeah. yeah. Just uh, 2004, I moved to Honolulu, mm-hmm. but only wholesale about seven years. Yeah. Then uh, finally, uh, we opened opened the 2012. Okay. Yeah. Okay. November. Right. And then I imagine you saw a good amount of success, and then the pandemic hits and travel between Japan and Hawaii pretty much dries up. Can you talk about how the pandemic impacted your business? Oh, just terrible. I just remember just 2020, March 26, Mm -hmm. lockdown. So I was thinking, this pandemic, I was thinking, I think it finished three, three, four, four months. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. But, you know, just very bad situation in Hawaii. The, then next one, there's a very bad situation in Tokyo. Nobody come to here. So I paid two years rent. Wow. So we cannot survive anymore. Yeah. So we reopened last month, February 4th. Right. So when the pandemic hit, you had to close down your shop. Yes. But you continue to pay rent for the two years. Yes. But you recently reopened in February. Yeah. Right. Okay. During the pandemic, was there a small amount of business that continued to come through? Or were you able to at least break even? Yeah, just we got PPP twice. And also in Japan, just uh, everybody helped us crowdfunding. Right. I read about that. So we have to keep my store. Just everybody, Mm -hmm. everybody say, yeah, next time I want to go to your shop, something. Yeah. So, yeah, we have to keep the maestro. So, so you, you, got a, you got a big response from your Japanese customers through, through crowdfunding. They helped you to be able to, to stay open, right? Yeah, to to yeah, be able to yeah, continue to right. pay rent. Yeah. That, I think that's amazing. What do you think it is about the Japanese people relationship with you and your shirts that led them to to want to help you that way so just 2001 i i i already 21 years already mm-hmm. so yeah. many are uh, customer there yeah you know just please help us just we cannot we cannot continue my shop so everybody help us i think that goes a long way to show the generosity and, and the and the uh, heart of the japanese people 
So you basically closed your shop for the last two years. You reopened in February with a new plan to extend to the U.S. market and beyond. Can you talk about your decision to pivot to try to reach other markets? What's what is your plan? Yeah, just yeah, we we know our, our Japanese market very strong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, should be coming coming back, yeah. but we learned our lesson. Yeah, after the what happening during uh, pandemic, mm-hmm. so we need just 50 percent just westbound uh, local, yeah. and uh, also a fifty percent we need a Japanese customer yeah. or Asian people, just some Korean, some Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So we have to change right now. Are you doing anything different to be able to reach yeah, those just, other uh, markets? Yeah, just I hired a ro- local just marketing company. Yeah. To help us appear branding for everything. Yeah. So just I'm very happy right now. At what point did you decide that you had to reach out to markets beyond Japan? I'm not sure, just just almost two years. So I was thinking always when is a very good timing. So yeah. just yeah, always I I was thinking. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But we yeah, we have to change I think February, yeah. decided February. I think it's pretty cool that there are some high-profile celebrities out there that have brought shirts from you. I've read that musicians with Hawaii ties like Kenny Loggins and Daryl Hall have, yeah. have bought shirts from you. Are you hoping that your shirts might be able to catch on with additional celebrities? <laughs> That'd be cool. Yeah, yeah. just Bru- yeah. Yeah, yeah, just Bruno Mars. Bruno Mars. Yeah. yeah, Bruno Mars is a collector of vintage aloha. Oh, okay. Yeah, also, you know, just very famous people, just uh, Francis Ford Coppola, mm-hmm. just Nicolas Cage, Dusty Hoffman. Yeah. yeah, just everybody like the vintage guy. Yeah, okay. Yeah. That, that's good That's good to hear. Those are some pretty big names. Yeah, just yeah. Bruno Mars, you know, yeah. born raised Hawaii. Mm-hmm. So just uh, if he come to my store, I just say, oh, I'm very happy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know that Aloha Ware has undergone a pretty dramatic transformation in recent years with local companies like Mana Ola and Tori Richard, Rick's Island Wear, all designing shirts that are instantly recognizable. What makes an Aloha shirt from Kona Bay, Hawaii unique? My company line is uh, 1950s, mm-hmm. from ni- 1950s. I have many original vintage. Uh-huh. Big difference is uh, 1950s vintage looks like very different. Right now, just kind of a little bit souvenir design. Right. But mine is almost the same, so a little bit different, more classic. And I know that nostalgia is a very powerful motivator for a lot of people. And so I imagine that you get a lot of people who really like that classic look. Mm. From what I've read, you craft your shirts the original way, the way that they were done back in the 30s and, and the 40s and the 50s. Fabric painting Japan. Mm-hmm. Then shift to here. The sewing here. This is 1930s, 1950s, same way. So I wanted exactly same same way. Okay. So and it's it's not just the the material and the print, but it's also the buttons, right? The the right. buttons that are sewn right. on are shell buttons, right? Genuine shell buttons. Yeah. yeah. How many vintage Aloha shirts do you own? <laughs> just. Uh, <laughs> I think it's about 400. 400? Yeah, 400. Wow. Where do you keep them all? Are they in your house? Do you wear yeah, them? Yeah, just my house yeah. right now. Yeah. <laughs> 1950s, so many company there. I think over 100 company, uh-huh. 1950s, just made very good quality one. Yeah. But I think after 1955, no company there. So I don't know, just the Darwin's a mystery. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It'd be interesting to know what changed. Yeah, just I think only one company, just Iolani. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's all. Just the yeah. other company gone, just no more, just after the 1955. Wow. So I don't know what's going on. Okay. You know, just yeah. not pandemic. Right. <laughs> so I don't know. Uh, of all your 400 vintage Aloha shirts, yeah. do you have a favorite? Can you describe which one is your favorite? Oh, just a uh, uh, 1953 movie from here to eternity. Mm-hmm. The, that one is uh, just Academy winner, just movie. Mm-hmm. That one, everybody wear the vintage aloha. Yeah. Yeah, mostly Duke Hanamoku by Cisco company. Mm-hmm. I think that one is a very expensive line and hard to find anymore. Yeah, every each year, hard to find. 
That was KCQ, the owner of Kona Bay Hawaii Aloha Shirts. He was talking with HPR's Russell Subiono about how he had to change his business model to get through the pandemic. Stephen Dubner, on the next Freakonomics Radio, do the U.S. and China have more in common than we'd like to admit? They have a similar problem of extreme inequality. And what makes Russian corruption different from corruption in China or the U.S.? That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Beginning this evening at 7, following Counterspin. Well, that wraps it up for us today. Tomorrow, we take a look at a proposed high-rise project by the rail station in Waipahu. It's on land owned by Kamehameha Schools. Is this your neighborhood? Share your comments by calling our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also connect with us on Facebook. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow, won't you, for more of the conversation. But in 2020, after the pandemic cut off international travel from many Asian countries, the company's owner, Kusuo Kesikiuchi, realized his business model needed to change. The Conversations' Russell Subiano sat down with Kiuchi in our studio to talk about how his business survived.